Welcome to the Gathering Chattanooga's audio resources. This message is part of a teaching from the Gospel of Mark. For more information on the gathering or to find additional resources, visit gatheringchattanooga.com. Again, that's gatheringchattanooga.com. And please consider subscribing to this podcast. We hope you enjoy and that God blesses you richly through the teaching of His Word. Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. You just heard it read a moment ago. Uh, there should be some Bibles around on the tables if you don't have one. Uh, worst case scenario, look at your phone. I invite you who are at home joining us. We're glad to have you as a part of our worship as well. Uh, when I want to ask you to turn to your Bible, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 as well. We want to engage the Word of God and, and look at it, see it. And pray that the, word of, that the Spirit of God will enlighten the Word of God to make an impact on our lives. So we're, gonna con- we're continuing our series in Mark, uh, moving right along. And I'm excited about today. It's, it's a, a very familiar parable. You've heard it. Uh, you heard it just a moment ago. You've, I'm sure you've heard it before, most of you. Uh, the parable of the sower. And it's an interesting thing as Jesus makes a bit of a turn. And we'll get to that in just a second. But as we look at the passage of Mark chapter 4 verses 1 through 20, I want to make sure that we understand the setting of what's going on as this has been read and what's going on because it can seem as though uh, if you just quickly read it, you'll see a parable, you know, the story that Jesus tells, a quick explanation of it and think all that happened at the same place and at the same time. And, and if, you, if you looked at it carefully, you'll see that that's not the case. That there are two different settings and two groups of people who Jesus was talking to. In verses 1 through 9, he's by the sea. He's in a boat and he's talking to the crowd. And in verses 10 through 20, it's another time and another place talking to a different group of people. It's the disciples, the apostles, and those who are with them. So there are disciples of Jesus beyond the 12 who are there as a part of that conversation And we have a bit of a different change in the focus because for the most part, except for a little parable here and there, we looked at one last week, the the first three chapters have focused mostly on what Jesus has done. He's cast out demons. He has uh, healed the sick and the lame. He has done things to demonstrate who he is and what he is there for. And we've gotten very little of the teaching. And now we have a little shift towards teaching, specific teaching. And so through verse 34 of this chapter... Uh, it is four parables. We get four successive parables. And, and I guess we need to stop for just a minute and make sure that we understand what a parable is. A parable, if you, if you know what an allegory is, it's similar but different. Uh, it's, it's a short story to make a point. In an allegory, almost everything makes a point. Everything, every element, every item within an allegory represents something. And that's different from a parable. A parable is generally a short story to describe something that has basically one point. You want to make one point with it. You're not necessarily going through now that sometimes there are subpoints in Jesus' parables, but he's trying to get to a point and it does one of two things. It either reveals or it conceals. It either reveals to those, as he would say in these parables, to those who have ears to hear, let him hear, and to those who do not, it conceals the message. It conceals the point. And so we see that very clearly, both of those elements in the parable that we're looking at today. So let's go ahead with that in mind, dive right in because there's a lot to it. 
and we don't have a whole lot of time. So we're looking at verses 1 through 2 again. This opens it up. Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat, and he sat down while the whole crowd was on the shore. He taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching, he said to them, and then it goes into the parable. So he's teaching them. Now, when you hear the word teaching, taught, to teach, what comes to mind? What do you think of when you think of teaching? You think of somebody who is getting up before a group and they're communicating some truth. They're trying to lay it out in a, in a full and, and understandable way. And when you're done, you would expect to have learned something. To know what it is that was being said by the person teaching. Well, this is what we would expect from Jesus as he's standing to teach. The Word of God tells us he stands up and he tells us something. And he starts off, verse 3, saying, listen, consider. Behold is another word, but listen and consider. So Jesus wants you to listen. Pay attention. All eyes up here kind of thing. Listen to what I'm saying and consider it. So don't just hear it. Mull it over. See it. See what's being said. Actually get your hands around it and see if you can grasp the teaching that's being said. He wants those who have ears to hear to hear. And it's important, and we'll see why it's important as we break this down a little bit. So verses 4 through 9 is the actual story. You've already heard it, but essentially he says, Listen, consider a sower went out to sow. From there Jesus says, he sows the seed on four different types of soil. And then he gets to the end and he says, on the, the one that uh, the good soil produces fruit that increased 30, 60, and 100 times. But those who have ears to hear, let him hear. And the crowd's going, yeah, and? There's, there's more, right? There's not more. That's it. He tells this short story about a, a farmer throwing out seed. Here's the different kind of soil, which everybody, if they thought about it, would go, yep, I got that. If you have ears to hear, let him hear. Y'all have a good day. They, they, they didn't get it. They didn't get any more. That's all they had. They didn't hear anything that Jesus might have been saying because there seemed to be no point. It was like, yeah, what's the punchline? Give me something. Work with me here. And they didn't get anything. And to most, it's little more than a riddle. And that is the point of what Jesus' followers, those who were there, that's kind of what they were getting at when they were talking about this, when they asked about this in verse 10, when he was alone, those around him with the 12. Now, we don't know if the 12 understood it or not. They didn't tell us. It just says those who were with the 12, they asked this question. They, they, they said, now, well, they asked him about the, the parables. And then his answer is important in verse 11. He answered them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, has been given to you. 
But to those outside, everything comes in parables. And then he goes on, and we'll hit that in a second. But, but he says, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those outside, everything comes in parables. Now, let me ask you, where have you heard that language before? Those outside. If you were here last week, you heard it. Because that's pretty much all we talked about. We talked about insiders and outsiders. The whole story, it was that Mark and Sandwich. This is another one, by the way. But that Mark and Sandwich we talked about where Mark has two stories that relate. And in the middle, there is teaching. There is an interaction that kind of makes it all have a sensical pattern to it. And so he talks about insiders and outsiders. The family of the associates at the beginning who came to Jesus thought they had some sort of control over Jesus. They were not considered the insiders. Jesus didn't let them have control. He didn't let them take him home and do what they wanted to. And at the end, they come back and they say, uh, they say, look, hey, send a message in. We want to, we want to talk to Jesus. This is his brother and his mother. And Jesus looks around and he says, who's my brother? Who's my mother? It's a rhetorical question, but it's to get to a point. And then he, he says who they are. So if you look at this, the insiders and the outsiders, the outsiders are those who had no faith relationship with Jesus. They weren't with him. You know what I'm talking about. They weren't with him. They didn't believe what he was doing. They didn't have a faith in him. And who were the insiders? Well, verse 34 and, 30, and 33 to 35 lays that out. Jesus replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those who were sitting in the circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister's and mothers, mother. So those who followed Jesus because they believed he was the promised Messiah and who wanted to do the will of God, those were the insiders and everyone else was the outsiders. So when we look at this, what is the secret of the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about that has been given to them? Right? That's what he said. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those who are outside, no. What is the secret to the kingdom of God that he's talking about? Jesus is talking about Jesus. He's talking about himself. Jesus is the one. Look in 14 and 15 what he did. Chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And he said this. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God has come near. Now, what has come near? When Jesus is there, what has come near? It's really not a what is it, it's a who. Who has come near? Jesus has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. That's Jesus. Those who see him for who he is have been given ears to hear, to understand. Whereas those like the, the scribes that are in chapter 3 verse 5 where Jesus looked at their hardness of heart. He noticed their hardness of heart and he was angry and he was also uh, saddened by it. He was grieved by it. Those who are hard-hearted and full of unbelief, they cannot understand. They don't want to understand. They don't care. They don't have any interest in this. So for them, the parable serves to confirm their unbelief. It seals it up. Back in chapter 4, look at 11. Let's go back to 11. Let's finish out this section. Let's run up to it because he says, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables so that. And here, 
It's, it's a passage from Isaiah that sounds pretty harsh. So that they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. Wow. That's, that sounds tough. But it's important for us to note, as we look at this and understand that part of the parable is to keep those who, who are on the outside not to see, not to hear, because they would turn and repent. And that's true. But it's important for us to understand not everyone in that category, not everyone on the outside stays outside. Some are, become insiders through the same gospel. And as, a, as an illustration, I would just point you back to last week, what I said last week about the fact that in chapter 3, the mother and the brothers included James, the brother of Jesus, who was not a believer. And yet later, Jesus, after he was resurrected, he appeared, Paul makes it clear, he appeared to James, his brother. James became a believer because he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and eventually died for his faith. What, what did I say? Died for faith in his brother. How crazy is that? Any takers who are going to die because you've got faith in your brother? Probably not. And so we see that the gospel takes root. The gospel has a purpose. The, the gospel fulfills the purpose. But the reality is, and we have to understand this, that if the Spirit does not soften the heart and grant illumination of the revelation, repentance will never come because we cannot save, her, save ourselves. And if you don't believe me, consider this. The crowd of the first part, three through nine, they did not, that's all they had. Jesus then explained the rest. He explained the parable so that they could get it. I would dare say that everyone in America, most everyone, has access to this. There are places in the world where there's no access to the gospel. They don't have a copy of the Bible. Most everybody can get a Bible if they want one. So everyone in America, arguably, can read this, read the explanation, understand just cognitively what it says, and still come away going, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. So they can have the explanation and not believe the explanation. Why? Because the Spirit of God has to illuminate it has to reveal it. They can see it, but they don't believe that it applies to them because they are blinded to their own sin nature and their need for a Savior. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great Welsh pastor in the 20th century, he said this. He said, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put ourselves, uh, we can always put up a good case for ourselves. So you're never going to be able to see your sin on your own because you're always defending yourself. Well, I got a reason for that. Well, this is the way I feel. This is the way I do. That's just the way I was born. It doesn't matter. So we're not, all, we're not going to be able to see that unless the Spirit of God first convicts us of sin. So now, let's spend a little time on the explanation in verses 13 through 20. Starting in verse 13, let's look. Then he said to them, don't you understand this parable? It's an interesting thing for Jesus to say. Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? Now, I think it's interesting that he didn't say any of the parables. He said all the parables. He said, this is the key to understanding all of the parables. 
How, how are you going to get it if you don't understand this? Why would he say that? Why is that important? Why is this one a key? And I believe that it's a key because of uh, two essential elements of the gospel that are laid out in this parable, both the parable itself and the explanation. And if we look at it and you go back and you, you look at what is, and you have to ask yourself the question, what's the main point? What is the main issue or what is the focus of verses 3 through 9? And you would have to come up with the fact that it's about the sower. It's about the farmer, the sower. He goes out and he explains what he's doing, but it's all about the sower doing action. The sower doing something. It's not really about the soil per se. It's, it's not about the seed per se. It's about the sower who's going about sowing these things. He's scattering the seed. And so who is the sower? It would be Jesus. Jesus is the sower. It tells us who Jesus is, the one who scatters the seed, the one who ushers in the kingdom of God and who, in fact, the kingdom is all about. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach. Why? This is why I've come. I've come to scatter the seed broadly, to proclaim the kingdom broadly on all peoples, in all situations, on all types of soil. So Jesus is this sower, scattering the seed, ushering in the kingdom of God. So verses 3 through 9, this parable, it deals with what we call Christology. About an understanding of who Jesus is, why he's here, what he's come to do, and who he is ultimately. So we have an understanding of Jesus being the Christ who came to usher in the kingdom of God, to bring hope to the world. That is an important thing for us to understand. And what does he scatter? We have to jump to verse 14 for that. If you jump to verse 14, verse 14 says, The sower sows what? The word. The sower sows the word. That is the gospel or the good news that the Messiah has come to take away the sins of the world. That is the word. That is what is being sown. And so the kingdom comes through the word. Now, I love what, uh, what Derek Thomas says about this. He says, and I want you to catch this. He says, there are all kinds of thoughts about how the kingdom comes. I think we've got some folks in our day who think it comes through the sacraments, or we might say the ordinances, baptism, the, the Lord's Supper. He says it comes through baptism. It comes through the celebration of the Lord's table. And they take pride of place in the worship service, and that these are the boundary markers of the children of God. There are others who think that the kingdom comes through the force of arms, that if we send our troops out to Iraq, that the kingdom of God will come and that Islam will be defeated and the Christian banner will fly in the Middle East again. And others think that the kingdom of God will come through acts of social justice. That's what we need. We need to engage in acts of social justice, works of mercy, works to the poor, and so on. Through social reform, through politics, through legislation, the kingdom of God will come. And Jesus says, it will come by the word. In the greatest sense, of course, Jesus is the word. John 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word came and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father. So in the greatest ultimate sense, Jesus is the word. Jesus is the, the communication of God. He is God in the flesh. But as we see it fleshed out for us in its expression, it comes through the 66 books of the Bible. That is what we have. 
that communicates who God is. That's why every week we're preaching from the Word. We're going verse by verse because that is the expression of the Word of God spoken to us that contains the power, that tells us what we need to know, how to live, how not to live, and where our hope comes from, where the grace of God falls in, how He takes us where we can't take ourselves, does for us what we can't do for ourselves, and does in and through us what we can't do at all. It's all through the Word of God. It is through believing what the Bible says about Jesus and responding in repentance that we experience the kingdom of God. So the parable itself is about the sower. But look in verse 15. There's a change that happens. 14 talks about the word. But look what happens in 15. He says this. Some are like the word. 14, first part, he's sowing the word. In 15, he says some are like the word. So what's the emphasis there? It's people. So we've gone talking about Jesus, that Christology, to people, that some are like the word. Now the emphasis being on people in, in verse 15, the first, second part of 15, he gets specific and he says, when they hear, and then he goes on to tell about what, what it is. So when they hear, so the most important factor in this with the others is their hearing, is the hearing. And I'm just talking about the words. I mean, we can, you, you know, you can listen to words and not hear. Ask any kid with his parents. Talk, 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 and they get a Charlie Brown moment where it's like, wah, 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 wah. And they hear the words, they just don't understand them. It's selective listening, but we all can do that. So this is more than just hearing the words. It's receiving the words. It's really listening. It's considering it, which is what Jesus had said initially. Considering it, receiving the truth. It is all about receptivity to the gospel. So the first element this parable deals with is who Jesus is. And we could sum it up to say that the second thing that this parable deals with is what discipleship is. What we do with the gospel that we hear how we grow, if we grow, where, where we grow, what happens as we grow. All of these things are dealt with here. So it's who Jesus is and what discipleship is. You need to understand that to understand the rest of what the gospel is all about. If we miss who Jesus is, we don't get the gospel right. If we miss out on what discipleship is, we don't get the, the gospel right. So it's important for us to understand the kingdom is about who Jesus is and what he has done and how we respond to that. And if and what our responsibility is. So now as we look at how Jesus explains this parable, we'll see that the word word, the word word is used eight times in this explanation. The word, some form of the word to hear, hear, hearing, those who hear is used four times. And so we can narrow that down to say there are four different ways to hear. But the focus is on the hearing in each, the word is sown. They hear it, but they ultimately reject it. Three out of the four. So three-fourths of those who hear it in some way reject it. But notice the three of them don't really hear. And that's what we want to see. Even though there are four types, there are three of them that don't really hear. So I want to encourage you. I want to make sure today that you are really hearing the word. And I'm going to explain the significance of that statement when I get to the fourth kind of hearing. But first, let's start 15 again 
uh, with the first kind of hearing. So 15, some are like the word sown on the path. So we've got the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and he takes the word sown in them. So there is this word being sown in them. They hear it. They receive it in some way, but it says immediately Satan comes and steals this away. Now, as I've gone through these, I think this is the most dangerous. Out of the other, all three of these, I think this is the most dangerous one because it is so subtle. Because it can happen and you not notice it at all. The word is sown, but the seed only hits the surface because it never has time to sink in. It never has time to take root. It never has any way of making an impact. Everything else comes to mind. Everything else crowds out that. Everything else is the focus. The busyness takes over. There's never a serious consideration of the word. And it can happen immediately. I would dare say it's happened today. I think it's probably happened since I've been standing up here talking to you. Because quite often and quite easily, we can sit in a setting like this. You can have someone up speaking, even proclaiming the word of God. And dude, you're thinking about the afternoon plans. You're like, I don't, what are we having for lunch? One of you might even be just contemplating your shoes. I mean, it's just it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is. There are things that take us off. We're hearing what we're not really hearing because of all of the things that, and Jesus would say that that's Satan, that that's the scheme of the enemy, that you're not receiving the word because the, the minions of the evil one are stealing your focus. Now, please don't picture the little yellow guys with the funny goggles. We're talking about the really bad guys. C.S. Lewis dealt with this in Screwtape Letters, if you're familiar with that. Uh, Screwtape Letters is, is a book that, that he wrote about uh, a senior level demon, an older demon who is, uh, is essentially discipling his nephew, a younger demon, and how, you know, how to do the biz about, uh, uh, about misleading the, the followers of Jesus. And in this, he deals with this very point. So you've got this guy who's in church, and they're in London, and, and so while he's hearing, while he's listening to the sermon, sort of, he starts thinking about the number 75 bus. Is it going to be on time? Am I going to miss my ride home? All of that while the sermon is going on so that he never actually hears it. It's, he's thinking about a bus. But even something like that can steal away the important process of hearing and receiving the word of God. Has that happened to you today? Do you feel as though, man, I just heard that part, but what did he say before that? Because I have no idea. It can happen in your daily life. All of the busyness of life can do it. It happens all the time. And we have to fight it. It's not easy, but you got to fight that, man. It's like, no, I'm going to stay engaged. I'm going to stay focused. The battle for the, the soul is in the mind. We have to fight that. Listen to the word. Actively engage it. And I think, honestly... We have too many things in our world and even sometimes in our church that just kind of promote laziness. The first thing I said to you today was turn with me in your Bible. 
Open it up and look at the word. See it. Engage the word. And, and if, you, you know, if it's on your phone, fine. But at least do something. Go and look at the word yourself. See it yourself. Last couple of weeks, you'll notice there hadn't been a single note up here, not a single slide on the scripture. If you're going to see it, you're going to, have to, you're going to have to read it. If you're going to remember it, you're going to have to write it down. And that's what I would encourage you to do. I thought back on my own life. What was one of the most significant things in my life as a teenager growing up that I was encouraged to do, some ways forced to do, but really had an impact? And it was learning the practice of taking notes. That's so important. Man, when I was growing up going to church, we didn't have these. We didn't, they didn't even hand out a sheet. A lot of churches will hand out a sheet with notes on it. We didn't have that. It was like, if you're going to remember it, you're going to write it down. And you know what? As I wrote it down, I remembered it. And so to this day, I don't go and listen to a sermon. I don't go listen to, without a notebook and a pen in my hand. Because you know what? If somebody's proclaiming the word of God, it's a very good chance that God's going to say something I'm going to want to remember because it has an impact on my life. And if I don't, get me through lunch and I probably don't remember it. So we have to train ourselves. We have to fight for it. Because the enemy wants to steal it away. Second one, verses 16 and 17. This is talking about the rocky ground. And others are like seeds sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Consider that one just a minute. They receive it with joy. I think that's a clue, honestly. Because think about this. This is rocky soil. This is someone who did not actually receive it, but they receive it with joy. How might that be a clue as to the problem if it lands on rocky soil? Because it, it doesn't penetrate the soul, the soul. It doesn't get to... Let me, let me just simplify it this way. If you hear the gospel, and the gospel is that you are a sinner who has offended a holy God, and because of that, the weight of your sin earns you nothing but hell and destruction. And your sin, if you come to understand this, is what caused Jesus, the innocent Savior, to be nailed to a cross. I'm not all that joyful about that. Before I ever get to joy, I'm in brokenness first. If I receive it, if I hear it and I receive it and I comprehend it and I understand it, there's first brokenness. This says he receives it with joy but falls away. And I think sometimes that's because there's a lot of easy believism. There's this gospel that's not really the gospel because it goes to the good news. It goes to the wonderful plan that God has. It goes to how God wants to bless your life, how God wants you to just be with him all the time. All that's great. Be in heaven for eternal life. That's really good. That's a part of it. That's joyful. It is joy-filled. But before I understand that, I have to understand my brokenness. I have to come to terms with that. Man, I got to mourn and grieve over that and do something with that. And too often we don't provide that understanding. And if the Spirit through the Word doesn't first bring brokenness, there will not ultimately be joy. But if He does, there will. There will be joy when you understand that you have heard and you, uh, you, you understand that all of that that you're broken over has been dealt with on the cross. And you don't have to try and you don't have to work. You don't have to earn that. That's all a free gift of God. That's the grace of God. There's joy that comes, but you have to understand this. 
And so under, these who are on rocky, so they hear this watered-down message of God bringing happiness and maybe even wealth. And so it's a total shock to them when bad things happen. It's a total shock when, wow, this, this, isn't, this isn't panning out like they told me. And so then they get to the point where they start understanding or thinking that this is all just a lie because they promised all this good stuff, this wonderful plan, and I don't like this plan because this plan has bad stuff happening to me. This plan is horrible for me. And you add in persecution as it says, because of the word. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. You start adding persecution that because of what I believe, because I trust in Jesus, now you're going to come and do that to me? Forget this. I didn't sign up for that. The gospel has to be communicated in understanding that you can't have that mentality. And if you have that mentality that everything is going to go smoothly because you're a Christian, you're not going to last. Because in this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have difficulty. And those who've received the word and experienced the brokenness on their sin, they will have that joy. And then as they grow deep, they will be firmly grounded so that the difficulty that comes won't shatter them, but the peace and grace will meet them where they are and hold them solid. Man, many of you have gone through so much. You have gone through so much pain and so much loss. And you, many of you, have given a testimony that God's grace showed up when everything was over, when it seemed like everything was, was done. But yet God's grace was there. His peace carried you through that. That is the hope of the gospel. That's the joy that comes. It's not that I, you know, have a big bank account and everything goes smoothly. It's that Jesus is there and that Jesus is enough. The third one, verse 18 and 19. Others are like seeds sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word. But the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the, the desires uh, for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. It's the, the first time we've heard of fruit, and they become unfruitful. And so there are three things then that come and choke out the word, and it's essentially worries, wealth, and wants. It's worries, wealth, and wants. Three things that choke out the word. He starts off with the worries of this world. Where we just start to, I mean, just everything is causing us anxiety. Everything, uh, we're just wondering how we're going to make that. How are we going to meet that bill? How are we going to overcome that? How are we going to deal with this? What if they get sick? What if they die? What happens? What? And I'm just overcome by worry of all the things in this world. And when our focus is on the problems we have, it destroys the possibility for faith. Worry and faith, no matter how much we want to try to baptize it and recategorize it, worry and faith are opposites. They're opposites. It is antithetical to faith. It's why Paul in Philippians 4 said, do not be anxious or do not worry about anything. And that's like last week we said all is kind of all encompassing anything. Anything kind of is all encompassing too, isn't it? Anything means everything. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then because of that, there's a promise that follows. When you do that, if you worry, there's no peace. You will not experience peace because you're always worried, 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 and you have no faith in the fact that God is in control. But if you believe in him and you take your concerns to him and you leave them there and you don't now turn into worry, 
the promise is, is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it shouldn't make any sense. I was worried about that before, but I'm really at peace about that now. It doesn't make any sense. It surpasses all understanding. will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So again, if there's worry, there's no peace. But if there's faith, it eliminates the worry. And the worry chokes out the word because there's no faith in God who is the God of the gospel. That's something I think we all kind of deal with. The second one is the deceitfulness of wealth. This is very simple. We've talked about this a lot, but this is the trap of believing that you can provide for yourself. And so you don't really need God. You wouldn't do this philosophically. You wouldn't intentionally do this as I don't need God, but you might practically where you act as though you don't need God because you've got it all taken care of. But there's also this trap of believing that wealth can provide joy. So again, you have little need for God. You're getting your joy through the stuff that you have. And tied with that sort of is this desire for other things. You may not feel wealthy, but you have a desire for other things. You've got the wants. And for this person, Jesus is never enough. The focus is always on acquiring stuff and those things can serve as idols in our lives because it takes all of our attention and all of our money. What is the definition of an idol? It's something that takes your time and takes your resources. It's something you offer, you spend all your time trying to please or trying to acquire or whatever, and it takes all your resources. So if you're always trying to acquire stuff and it dominates your time and your money, watch out. Because that's one of the warnings of the gospel, the, the kingdom, the seed falling on, on this, uh, this type of soil. This is why Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You're going you're gonna to be loyal to one, you're going to hate the other. And all of these things choke out the word. And there's no, loo, no room left for Christ in the life. Number four, verse 20. And those like seed sown on good ground hear the word, they welcome it, and they produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. Now, there's something interesting that happens here. I'm going to try to run through this quickly, but I think it's important. Because we've had a, we've had a, a way in which this has been written, these first, three, uh, these first three types of ground. They have been written in the aorist tense in the Greek. The aorist, the aorist tense is a punctiliar event. It's, it's like a, a single uh, event. It's like a once and done. It happened. This one is different because it's written in the present tense. And so it's like this ongoing thing. So it, it would read more like they received the word and they kept on receiving. They heard the word and they kept on hearing. So it has this implication that they hear the word, uh, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't just stop there. The first three, they hear the word, but it doesn't do anything. It has no effect. It, it doesn't change them. There's no lasting transformation. But this one, they remain engaged with the word. They dwell in it. They contemplate it. They assimilate it into their lives, and they are changed by it, producing uh, fruit. It has a life-altering effect. That's a huge difference. It means you're not just going to hear the word. You're going to dwell in the word. You're going to remain in the word. You're going to engage the word. And there's this fruit. It's going to produce fruit. Yes, we need to understand what this is because a Christian is known by their fruit according to Jesus. So what is this fruit? 
And I would say, without going into a lot of detail, let's generally look at it and say what Scripture said. Scripture says that, that this fruit involves doing the will of God. So if you're doing the will of God, if you're fulfilling the will of God for you in your life, then that's going to produce this fruit. Now, people are different, and fruit is different. We like to compare fruit. I'm a lot fruitier than you are. No, you're not. I'm fruitier than you are. And, you know, we just this thing about I'm doing much more for the kingdom of God. But look at what he said here. 30, 60, and 100 fold. There's different measures there. There's different percentages. Some produced 30 times. Some produced, produced 60 times and some 100 times. The point, and I think the, the emphasis here, is not how much fruit your life looks like it's producing. It is that it is not zero. That there is fruit. There is something happening where the will of God is being accomplished in your life. And that may sometimes deal with where you are in the journey. Maybe you're young in the faith. And that may mean that you're producing tons of fruit. Or it might mean that you're, you're not producing a lot of fruit yet. But there is some fruit. There's measurable fruit that's happening in your life. That points to the, the work of God in your life. The seed taking root and growing in you. It is important for us to understand that And the message then is that the gospel takes, when it takes root in us, we will be amazed by what it does through us. And that's the point, that it's the gospel doing the work through us. It is not about what we do. It is all about Jesus. So the key to the mystery of the kingdom is Jesus. We go back to verses 10 to 12, we wrap this up. And then it is that, this, that those who press in close to Jesus and they desire to do God's will, the Father's will, are the insiders who receive this revelation of the gospel. They are changed by it and they produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And those who do not submit to Jesus and are not interested in living the will of God do not receive the revelation. They are not really changed by it and they will ultimately fall away. The parable seals their unbelief. And to them, the gospel either makes no sense or it makes sense, but it makes no impact. Either way, it's fruitless. James Edwards comments on the two elements of this parable. And he says, right confession of Jesus leads to right discipleship. Right confession of Jesus leads to right discipleship. What is he saying there? He's saying that right relationship with Jesus births in us true discipleship. It flows through us. It takes root and it begins to produce in us. It makes us disciples. It's not about us. It's about what Jesus does in us. And if we have a right relationship with Jesus, if we trust him, we submit to him, then that is the work that he does in us. And it's not about you faking it till you make it. It is about submission and following him and staying close to him listening, abiding in him, remaining in the word, remaining engaged, and hearing that. It's an organic kind of experience. So, question, real simple. Have you received the gospel and keep on receiving it? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you been changed by it? And if not, have you heard it today? And you go, I, that's, that's what I want. I don't have that, but that's what I want. Then trust Jesus. Don't stay hardened in your heart. Trust him, turn to him, repent and believe. Maybe your focus is on this life and all the promises of wealth and glory. And the word warns us against that. And I think in America, we all have that risk. And all we can say is just don't be fooled by it. Don't, it, it, never, it never delivers what it promises us. 
Use your wealth, but don't be used by it. Don't be a slave to your money, but enslave your money for the kingdom of God. Use it. Leverage it for kingdom purposes. You can enjoy, but at the same time, make sure that it is focused on kingdom uses. And then this for the rest of us. If you've heard the gospel and you've received it, but you've not grown deep in your faith, man, I'm going to encourage you to fight for that. Engage in it. Connect with other believers. Get in a discipleship group. Get in some sort of a group where you can hear the word, practice it together, encourage each other, challenge each other so that you can grow and that the, 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 the seed will take uh, root and you will experience the fruit that comes out of it. And, and then also engage in the word yourself, man. Stay engaged. Meditate on it. Pray through it. Uh, uh, go deeply with it. Read it regularly yourself. Just this morning, I saw Timothy Keller, Tim Keller, uh, posted something where he said this, do you study the scriptures? More importantly, do you let the scriptures study you? Do you stay engaged in the word so that, so that as you dissect, as I've always said, as you dissect the scripture and you, you break it down, you see what it's really saying, that in reality it starts to dissect you. And it lays you out. And you, you lay before God. You're laying before God and he, he does his work. In us. I'm going to tell you when I fail to do that, uh, I know it and everybody around me knows it. And it's, it's easy for these things to happen and we have to fight to keep from it. And so we have, to, we have to engage and we have to engage each other and encourage each other and pray for each other because we are known by our fruit. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. For more information about The Gathering, or if you would like to hear more, please visit gatheringchattanooga.com. Thank you.